0: Hi, I'm Radhika Dutt, author of Radical Product Thinking. I'm an entrepreneur and a product leader.
1: Radhika Dutt is the author of Radical Product Thinking, the new mindset for innovating smarter, which has been translated into several languages, including Chinese and Japanese. She is an entrepreneur and product leader who has participated in five acquisitions, two of which were companies that she founded. She advises organizations from high-tech startups to government agencies on building radical products that create a fundamental change. She is currently advisor on product thinking to the Monetary Authority of Singapore and serves on the board of the independent publisher, Barrett Kohler. Radhika has built products in a wide range of industries, including broadcast, media and entertainment, telecom, advertising technology, government, consumer apps, robotics, and even wine. She graduated from MIT with a Bachelor of Science and Master of Engineering in Electrical Engineering and speaks nine languages. In this episode, we talk about taking a vision-driven approach to building products, and Radhika shares her toolkit to help create a detailed vision and measure progress against it. We also talk about how our products may contribute to digital pollution and unintended consequences, and how product teams must make conscious decisions about those. Lots of practical tips and real-life examples in this episode to level up your product management.
2: Welcome to Product Perspectives, the podcast for product people that gives a voice to their stakeholders. Hosted by Magali Pellissier. Each weekly episode shows you the other side of the product with interviews of the people who contribute to making products a success. They are engineers, writers, marketers, support analysts, UX designers, or even salespeople. Not only will they get the credit they deserve, but they will share their perspectives on what makes a good product and product manager. Stakeholder management is a key skill for product managers. So just as you're obsessed with listening to your customers, let's hear from your stakeholders,
3: Thank you so much, Radhika, for being on the show with me, because I'm so impressed. I watched you in a webinar several months ago, and now you're in the show. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here, and I've loved your podcast episodes.
3: Thank you. So let's deep dive into your favorite topic, I guess, which is radical product thinking. So you brought a book about that, but can you summarize it in a nutshell? What
0: is it? Yeah, so radical product thinking is a methodology so that any of us can build world-changing products, and it means creating these world-changing products in a very systematic, step-by-step manner. And radical product thinking gives that step-by-step framework for how can we be vision-driven to be able to build these world-changing products.
3: Perfect. And you've introduced the first word that I want to talk about, which is vision-driven, because most people talk about product led They say, "Okay, we got it. We don't want to be engineering led. We don't want to be sales led. We want to be product led. But you prefer the term vision driven. So can you explain?
0: Yes. You know, and in fact, I think people often just talk about product led without even contrasting with engineering led and sales led. And so in most organizations, what happens is someone who is very enthusiastic says we need to be product led. And across the organization, there's this backlash with people saying, wait a minute, you know, why do you get to take over? Or it feels like it's a power struggle where product people are now throwing this revolution saying, we want to be product led. And everyone says, but wait, weren't we supposed to be customer driven? Why are we product led? And so this confusion all feels really unnecessary. So The background really is exactly as you were saying, instead of being engineering led or sales led, we want to be product led, but let's define the problem. If you're engineering led, typically you're building solutions in search of a problem. And if you're sales led, you're very often saying, we'll just build anything, whatever brings in revenues, we'll build it. And so the balance between these two extremes was the idea of being product led, so meaning that we have to figure out what is it that the market needs, and then we build that. And so instead of calling it product-led, which is where all this backlash comes from, I like to call it vision-driven, because that's the essence of what we are really doing. It means having this clarity of what's the change that we're trying to create for our customers, and then how are we going to translate that very systematically into everyday actions and into our product. And so that's what I mean by calling it vision-driven instead of product-led. That's a very
3: good point about power struggle, because the focus of this podcast is to bring to the conversation all the stakeholders, colleagues whom we work with as product managers. So if I say we're product-led, then it feels like I'm almost excluding them and I make all the decisions. So I'm probably going to start using vision-driven from now on. Similarly, there's a lot of focus on speed and being fast paced, but you advocate for velocity instead. So what is the difference between speed and velocity? How do you define it? I
0: think the way we have learned to build products has been this focus on, we have to just iterate, you know, try things, put things in the market, see what works. And then we're going to iterate and optimize and find what works and what customers really want. And that sounds good in principle. And let's look at before we say, you know, it sounds good, let's look at kind of where does this model even originate from. And when we dig deeper, we see that the origins of this model lie in how VCs fund companies. So the way the VC business model works is, you know, they invest in 10 companies, and they only need one of those to be successful. The rest all they want them to, in fact, either die quickly or really go big because they don't want to invest and throw in more money in companies that are going to be middling for a long time, right? And so this model is where this fail fast, learn fast came from. And there's been so much survivor bias in how this model of just keep iterating evolved. There were a few big unicorns that emerged from this model, like you know Facebook and Uber and Twitter, et cetera like those few unicorns have really kind of shaped how we perceive products should be built. And so if you look at those unicorns, there is in comparison this vast graveyard of companies that have tried this approach and have failed as a result. And although we think that we should just be building products by taking this iterative approach, the reality is what we need is not just the speed at which we're iterating Because we literally have two to three pivots before you run out of money or momentum. Even if you're in large company, if you discover you keep having to pivot, people are going to get so frustrated, like, why am I even listening to you anymore, right? And so when we realize that we have two to three pivots, we have to be very deliberate and use pivots like silver bullets. And so that's why I talk about the need for not just trying lots of things. It's not just a matter of speed and trying lots of things but it's a deliberate approach to what we try in aligning everyone. So when I think about the physics definition of a difference between speed and velocity, speed means just going fast. We can all be moving fast in different directions, but hey, let's just move fast. Whereas velocity means we have speed, but we have direction associated with it, so that we're all pointing in the same direction, and that gives us velocity. And that's what I advocate for. And
3: we're going to talk again later about this intention being intentional in what we decide. So for now, I think you're right. We sometimes just want to be fast, but everybody's moving into different directions and that doesn't lead anywhere. One of the things that I liked about the webinar you did was that you talked about product diseases and I thought that was a very nice way to put it. So what is the most common product disease that you've seen in companies?
0: I like to talk about product diseases in the context of the size of company very often. So let's talk about small companies and big companies. So in small companies, the disease I see most often is pivotitis. And this is where we keep pivoting from one idea to the next. If I look at larger companies, I often see the disease strategic swelling, where your product starts out great, And then your customers have an idea for you. Oh, you know, if you just add this one other feature, I could also use it to do blah. And oh, if you add one more, I'll use it to do blah as well. And so eventually, as you keep adding these features, you know, your product just keeps getting more and more bloated so that it'll do everything for everyone. And that's strategic swelling, right? And I'll share just a couple of diseases based on whether a company is engineering-led versus sales-led. So if you're looking at an engineering-led company, very often the disease I see is narcissist complex, where we're so internally focused and very often focused on shiny new technologies or solutions and looking inwards and saying, oh, look how wonderful this is, what we've developed, that we become so disconnected from the customers that we, we really lose touch with what is it that our customers actually need. So that's an example of an engineering-led disease, which is Narcissus Complex. And the opposite of that is the sales-led company where one of the most common diseases, and I've caught this one myself, is obsessive sales disorder, where we just say, this customer, if we can win this big deal, if we just add this one custom feature. And pretty soon, you know, we keep adding these custom features And we're sitting with a stack of contracts and our entire roadmap is just driven by everything that we have to make good on. And so that's obsessive sales disorder at a sales-led company.
3: I think the names are brilliant. It's really good to see how you say, well, these types of diseases, they're Really, for like, small companies fall to that and bigger companies have this, I'm sure the audience can relate. I think like, they at least have one of those, I'm sure. <laughs> if somebody in the audience doesn't have any of those, I think send me a message.
0: <laughs> then we're just in denial, right? And that's why I like to start by talking about chronic diseases, because it's so important to acknowledge these, right? Because there's no shame in admitting it these are so ubiquitous. Let's just talk openly about these diseases. And then we say, okay, now how do we solve them? Exactly. That's the
3: first step to acknowledge it. So there's another one you mentioned. I'm going to try and pronounce it properly. Hypermetricemia, which is the obsession with metrics and analytics. It's the era of data. So that may seem a bit counterintuitive. So do you believe it's a mistake to measure and test everything?
0: I do believe it's a mistake to measure and test everything because measurement is expensive. And we think just because, uh, you know, big data exists and we can measure and store everything that we should or that that gives us a complete picture. But in reality, you know, some poor soul, and typically it's you as a product manager, (laughs) has to go and analyze all of this data and make sense of it and be able to do something with it and say, here's what we've learned from it. And so the reality is, because measurement is expensive, if you measure everything, you're most likely not going to have the time to analyze everything anyway, and you might miss out key information that you forget to record. And so what we need instead is a very thoughtful approach to measurement which again, if we go back to the idea of being vision-driven, if we know what is the change that we want to create for our users, have this clarity of vision, then we have a detailed strategy to say, okay, how will we bring this about? A set of actionable steps. And then our measurement and execution means that we treat the strategy as a hypothesis, that these are the elements that we think will work to make our vision come alive. And so, what we're measuring is to be able to test each element of that strategy and say, how will I know if it's working or if it's not working and I need to course correct? So we have to think of that in advance so that we can measure what is right for our product, as opposed to measuring what is popular to measure. And when we go measure what is popular instead of measuring what actually matters, that's hypermetricemia. I think you're right. We have to treat
3: data with what's the outcome? What answers do we want based on that data? What are we trying to validate and prioritize it? Just like we do in product, really. So about prioritization, actually, you've got that RPT approach to prioritization. So can you detail that?
0: Yeah. Prioritization is probably the biggest challenge for product managers, right? And what I found is that is, our biggest opportunity where we can really spread our influence across the organization, where we can scale our thinking across the organization. So let's talk about how prioritization is typically done. The way it's typically done is there is a a matrix, an Excel spreadsheet where you you have 150 or 500 different features that are listed. And what I see very often is for each feature, We then say how it ranks against five different criteria. And then, you know, this magic spreadsheet spits out, okay, this is number 25 on the list and this is number 425, right? And so if you ask anyone in the organization, you know, this particular task, where does it fit on the prioritization? You know, they'll go look up that spreadsheet and say, okay, this is where the story falls in priority. And you ask why, it says, well, because it ranks blah, blah, blah. And they're just reading out the spreadsheet. So what's missing in this scenario is you're not hearing an intuition from them. You're not hearing the intuition where they say, this is the trade-off between the long-term and the short-term, and that's why we're doing this. And so as a product manager, you know, we really, our goal is that we want to make ourselves redundant and obsolete. If our whole team, and in fact, if the whole organization can think like us and make the right trade-offs like we would, then we can take the day off, right, and not be (laughs) in every single meeting. If we think about that as the goal, then the question is, how can you convey your priorities so that you're building this intuition in your whole team? And so let's look at what is our intuition? How do we develop this intuition? When we think about how we make decisions, we're constantly trading off the long term against the short term. It's the yin and yang model of long term being the vision and short term being survival and urgent business needs. So you can just make that explicit by saying, let's put this on an X and Y axis so you can visualize this yin and yang. The Y axis is, is this a good vision fit or not? And the X axis, is this a good survival item or not? Survival meaning, you know, if you're a startup, survival is financial survival. If you're in a big company, survival might mean stakeholder support because if your boss hates what you're doing, you know, maybe you don't have a job anymore. Or if your stakeholders hate what you're doing, maybe your product is dead. And so now you can start to balance vision against survival. So features that are good for vision and survival, well, those are easy decisions, right? Those are in the ideal quadrant. If we only focus on easy decisions, then we're still being short-term driven. So sometimes we have to invest in the vision. That's where it's good for the vision, but in the short term, maybe you're not seeing immediate results or revenues. So examples of this would be fixing technical debt. Maybe you have to refactor code. Or another example would be doing some user research. So that's investing in the vision. The opposite of that is building vision debt. This is where, you know, we talked about obsessive sales disorder, like taking on a custom feature that is good for survival, but it's bad for the long-term vision. And so if you keep doing too much of vision debt, then you catch obsessive sales disorder. And the last quadrant is, of course, danger, which is bad for vision, bad for survival. But most likely, nobody's asking you to do any of those features. And so those are also easy decisions, right? And so now prioritization is basically when you can work with your team and you put up post-its for each of your stories and you can say, okay, where does it fit on these quadrants? And then you might do more things than IDEAL. You might do some things in investing in the vision based on how much can you afford to invest in the vision. And then sometimes you do vision debt when you absolutely have to, but you acknowledge that it's vision debt. And so you start to spread your thinking in terms of what are the right trade-offs for our product? And this way, you know, now your developer goes off and your developer's coding and this developer can now think about, okay. How Am I applying these same ideas in terms of long-term versus short-term trade-offs in how I'm coding this up? And that's how you can really spread your rationale and thinking across the organization. Yes. I like the
3: idea of the whole team knows we must make ourselves redundant. When you said that the X-axis is the survival. I thought, well, sometimes it could be like a personal goal as well, as opposed to thinking about the company and the product. So at least if you share it, you don't have that risk of trying to develop your own career, for example.
0: I love what you said. And in fact, sometimes what makes us not align with other people is either that we disagree on the vision or we disagree on what is survival. And exactly what you said, like, if you can just make what is vision and survival explicit, and I actually try to call out the X and Y axis, and and what is our vision, what is our survival, and then we can all use the same axes to start to prioritize. And it helps make these discussions less contentious, because now it's not just a matter of my opinion versus yours. It's that if we agree or disagree, we can talk about where are we agreeing or disagreeing. Like, are we talking about the same vision? Do we have the same
3: incentives aligned? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I had the same discussion with the UX designer about aligning on the definition of MVP, because we may just assume everybody has the same idea as us, but it's actually very often not quite right. So I want to move on to another topic that you are passionate about, which is doing products for good, because there's a lot of talks right now about how ethical AI is, for example, and there's a growing concern amongst consumers and businesses towards sustainability, diversity, equity, inclusion, and ethics. So how do we measure the ethical impact of a product? I
0: think we have to measure it along two dimensions. The first thing is we have to realize that our products most likely are contributing to some amount of digital pollution let's first define what digital pollution is. So similar to environmental pollution, which has been the byproduct of growth in industry, digital pollution has been the byproduct of the growth in the tech industry. And unfortunately, I think digital pollution is even harder to see because we don't observe air pollution and and warming, but what we're seeing is the fraying of our the fabric of society. In the book I've defined five kinds of digital pollution. One is healing inequality. The second is hijacking attention, where every product is trying to vie for your attention. Then there's increasing polarization, which we're seeing a lot of with social media, but not just social media. Erosion of privacy. And the last is eroding the information ecosystem. So this is where, for example, misinformation is so common. And especially with chat GPT, I feel like this is such a danger because now it sounds even more authoritative when it speaks a natural language, right? So these five types of digital pollution, we have to be honest about our product and say, you know, how is our product contributing to each of these five different types? Once we've thought about the negative impact, then we can think about the positive impact. And in terms of questioning what is this positive impact, we have to see, you know, is our product creating equitable outcomes for society? And when we don't think about this in a very deliberate way, when we don't ask this question, most likely the result is we're thinking about the product for a certain majority of users who are probably, you know, not the marginalized group. And Very often, we will justify this. We'll justify this way of thinking, let's build for the centralized group and we'll address the marginalized needs later. But the reality is, let's think about social media and how this is played out. If you look at social media, the people who face the most hate speech and trolling, those are marginalized groups. And so you could say, well, or this is what social media has said. Well, you know, we will continue to address these issues as they come up. What happens? Like now there's been several rounds of layoffs, and what you now find is this priority of addressing hate speech has been kind of set aside. In fact, a lot of the layoffs have targeted people who are working in that hate speech area in moderation. So it is very easy if we're not deliberate about thinking about is our product creating equitable outcomes that we never will get to it. So those are the two measures. Are we creating a negative impact in terms of digital pollution? And secondly, how are we measuring the positive impact? Are we creating equitable outcomes for people?
3: Is it fair to say that there's a sixth negative impact, which is the amount of data that we're storing and the actual environmental pollution? that it creates, because that's one of the things I thought when I created this podcast, I thought, well, I'm going to add some more data in a data center. Is it really worth it? So I think there's an element of environmental pollution as well.
0: I love that you're being so thoughtful about it. This is the kind of thinking we have to go through. And the reality is there's no right answer. We can only be deliberate by asking the right questions. And what you just said, those are the same questions I think about. When I create posts, every post I create, I feel like there's some amount of digital pollution that I'm contributing to. And so is it worth doing it or not? Including every blog post I write, we can look at each of these pieces that we contribute to as vision debt. So for example, if I put out a blog post, the question is, is this blog post falling in a vision debt category? Where. I'm doing it to be able to target SEO, etc. But it's not good for the long-term vision. Or am I actually investing in the vision, where sometimes I write about things that nobody cares about in SEO. But really, this is important for my vision for radical product thinking. Those are the kinds of decisions and evaluations that we have to go through.
3: Based on what I'm hearing so far, this content is worth sharing. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that you mentioned to me is that you have read the book Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. And that's a book I read too, and I recommend it. I do think that it omits the question of non-binary people. That's my main concern. But what is the main takeaway from the book that you got?
0: That book really illustrates how the world is not designed or forget being designed for a certain group of people. Like the world doesn't even take into account half the population at the very least. And I agree with you, it doesn't address non-binary, but also BIPOC, which is even more marginalized people than the whole category of women, I'll say. But even just this premise, I think it illustrates how the world is not designed with women in mind. All the way from seatbelts to how snow plowing is done, it doesn't take into account the needs of women who are pushing strollers. The book for me was really this illustration of what it means to be able to create equitable outcomes and that when we do use a research, we have to think about marginalized groups or people that we have not probably considered. The one takeaway for me from this book was, start with this vision of Whose world are you trying to change? But then when you craft a strategy, think about every persona that you are going to target or like that your product is going to affect. And when you think of these personas, typically we tend to think about just this is my buyer persona and the seller persona and blah, blah, right? But like get into a little bit more detail as we think about different personas, including like how is this going to affect marginalized groups? Think about psychographics as opposed to just demographics. Those are some thoughts in terms of how we can build products that create equity.
3: You've already talked about the different contributions to digital pollution. You've gave some examples and given some some tips already. I think one of the challenges we see at the moment is with that culture of experimenting in products. So we try something, does it work, does it not work? And if it works, then we improve. The way we measure the outcome as well is biased as well based on what we're interested in. But sometimes that means that it can lead to unintended consequences. So, so we're not always intentional about what we put on the market and the effects it has.
0: What are some examples of that that you've seen? I'll start with some obvious examples and then we'll talk about the less obvious ones. In terms of obvious examples, you know, we've seen how Facebook has fueled polarization. And in countries like Myanmar or in India, that has led to violence as well because we've not moderated hate speech. But you can't say really that those consequences are truly unintended. Why? Because a lot of this was predicted a long time ago. I think this was more of a business decision where it goes back to what we talked about earlier. We always think we'll address issues as they arise. And so this was one case where I saw these issues coming up, but it was a choice made as to do we invest in solving this problem or not. And the choice was to not do that, right? In terms of not such obvious examples, let's look at the example of healthcare and the unintended consequences of how the American healthcare system works. We have for a while that, you know, privatized healthcare is the way to go because that's gonna produce better results for people. Let's look at how hospitals were structured. Because they were privatized and because they were operating as for-profit businesses, a lot of their approach to running the business was about keeping the minimum amount of inventory on hand, keeping the minimum amount of staffing on hand, etc. And so you had overworked people on the front line, you had low inventory of PPE, and then something like the pandemic hits. And this is where this was such a huge consequence to society and to a whole country with such a huge tragic loss of life. You can call this unintended consequences of kind of an entire business model that was set up. And if you trace that a little further back, this whole business model came up because there was a lack of a vision. A lack of vision in terms of what's the change that we want to create. And if you think about change that you want to create, that is, equitable change for people or for a society, and are we creating equitable outcomes, then your entire model, including your business model, your strategy, et cetera, would be very different. So going back to the idea of tying, you know, being vision-driven that applies to being able to build these equitable products and avoiding these unintended consequences, you have to be intentional, have this clarity of vision, and then systematically translate it into strategy, how we prioritize things, and then measuring what works. I think that's a great point
3: because we sometimes make excuses for ourselves saying, oh, we didn't know that would happen. Like Facebook didn't know that the like button would result in teenagers committing suicide because they don't have enough of them. But actually what you're saying is that these, are not, these were not unknown unknowns. There were conscious decisions and they were linked to priorities and the vision
0: the lack thereof right and and facebook's example of a lack of vision is really striking if you think about their vision it was to be to create a world that's open and connected it sounds grand if you dig into that just one level deeper you go like wait a minute what does an open and connected world actually look like and that part is absolutely not clear and which is where so many of these problems come from you're not
3: going to make friends at Facebook.
0: <laughs> in this podcast, I like to have a product manager,
3: you know, asking you a question. So in that case, it's a question from Ron D, and I think it's a brilliant question. So let's hear it.
0: Hi, Radhika. This is Randy Delacruz-Johnson, product manager from Best Buy. My question is, with the market so saturated with products meant to keep people, including children, on a screen for as long as possible, how do you see product management ethically fitting into the world of instant digital gratification?
3: I think it goes very well with the topic of Facebook and social media that you were discussing earlier. Over to you.
0: I love Randy's question. And one of the key things is the trap we fall into as product people is that we tend to measure popular metrics, things like user engagement, the average time spent on site, how often people keep coming back, et cetera. And we have learned from books like Hooked that our products have to be addictive so that they're successful. And we really need to challenge that thinking. Products don't always have to be addictive to be successful. And I want to share an example of this that I've found to be really inspiring. So there's a game called No Man's Sky, which has been one of the best-selling games for many consecutive years now. It's done really well. And that game actually was designed to feel meditative. So the game was designed as a multi-universe game where, you know, there are universes that spawn up and then you can explore planets. So you're basically this first person being able to explore planets and a whole galaxy, etc. And it kind of feels lonely and meditative, but yet you can collaborate with other people. There is no competition. It's really a matter of building worlds and bases together. It's like Minecraft, but much more high fidelity and truly beautiful, right? And feels like you're exploring space. And my point is, none of it is designed to be addictive. Yet, there is long gameplay that they're finding. The game has been selling incredibly well. All of this was driven by a vision. The founder of Hello Games had a vision for this game. He had always wanted to explore space as a kid and wanted to build this game that was meditative. So where every game tries to get you to buy all this in-game currency and blah blah blah, this game doesn't do any of that. Like it's so calm and peaceful. It just makes you happy. This is an example of how we can build products by being vision-driven. We don't have to fall into that trap so how can you explicitly avoid this trap? Think about what's the change, what's the vision, and measure progress against that vision. And yes, you do have to balance survival, be cognizant of doing when you're taking on that vision debt, so that you can be true to your vision. And there's one last thing I want to say is, very often you hear tech leaders saying, Well, we need regulations to manage all of this. And really, that is a way of deflecting responsibility and saying, someone else should tell me what to do. Otherwise, I'm going to keep creating digital pollution until I feel like it. The reality is regulations will take a very long time. There is a second excuse that we tend to use, which is we say, you know what? Users can vote with their dollar. And That's also a fake premise because with so much consolidation as a user, really, you have very little choice. There is little choice. And when that's the case, you can't vote with your dollar. So who votes, actually? It's every single employee. When we're working on a product, we're voting with our labor. We have to decide what is it that we stand for and what is it that we want to contribute to in this world. And so we just have to make those very conscious choices in what we're creating. I like
3: the second point because I used to think that I could vote with my pounds <laughs> in London. And that was really my thinking. And to give you an idea, I tried to leave Google products. I left LinkedIn. But after some time, I realized I had no choice as a consumer. I had to use this product. So you're right, but this is not enough. And it has to come from within. On that, actually, TikTok announced recently that they are introducing a new screen time limit for kids. Do you think that's the kind of companies regulating themselves from within? Do you think that's the right thing to do?
0: It feels like a bit of a cop-out because I read some of the same. And the reality is it's very easy to get around that screen time limit. I feel like some of the fundamental algorithms are what need shifting, right? We can't design algorithms to hook users and then say, okay, we'll put a screen time limit because we know that users are going to then get around it. Yeah, it feels like the wrong solution to the problem.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So going back to product diseases, I think you have a question for me about that.
0: I do. So I've shared a few examples of product diseases, and I would love to hear your experience with a product disease that frustrated you the most so far. And I would love to hear kind of how you either overcame it or maybe it was bad for your product. Also, kind of one of the things that I've seen is As we grow more senior in our roles that we build insights and intuition. What are some things that you've learned since that you could apply in retrospective?
3: Right. And I wish I was thinking about one and I wish it was one of the ones you haven't mentioned because I wanted (laughs) to bring a new one. So it's the famous obsessive sales disorder. And let me tell you, it's even worse when it comes from the top, not just your sales team, Uh but let's say your CEO is a salesperson. So how did I go about that? I think... It's about aligning, same as what you said at the beginning, aligning our axis. What is our vision and what are we trying to achieve? And I think sometimes, especially with sales, we're not aligned. Like Their goal is to sell the product, whatever it takes. My goal is to build a future-proof product that works with the vision. So aligning this, and if that doesn't work at the individual level, it needs to come also from the leadership. So that's my role to influence the leadership. What I found as well is that more often than, than not, when the sales team come and ask me for this tiny feature, which obviously is not tiny <laughs> and uh, and there's a dozens of features underneath well hidden, they just think about the solution, but not the problem. so doing that exercise with them, doing I love doing whiteboarding with stakeholders like sales team marketing and all that, but also bringing some customers because it's very useful for customers to see how we think and first enabling them to find out the actual problem that is behind the scenes and then realizing that more than than not frequently this problem is not particular to this customer it's a problem that a lot of customers have so actually we're not solving for one particular customer anymore and then i love that exercise where you find eight solutions to the same problem and showing them there are lots of different ways you can do about it so i used to tell and try to explain to people. And now I show and I do it with them. And I think that works best.
0: I love that. Thank you for sharing. And that's one of those diseases that is so hard to overcome. I love your tip.
3: I'm sure lots of people will have recognized themselves, team. (laughs) Good. So in the final part of a podcast, which is one of my favorites, it's fire questions. So I will make several propositions to you and you pick one of them. And if you want, you can elaborate on it first one is Microsoft or Apple
0: neither actually I use Linux on my desktop
3: wow this is the first time somebody answers this (laughs) LinkedIn Facebook or TikTok LinkedIn book or podcast a book author speaker or product leader
0: this is a hard one I'm going to choose product leader only because I think being a good product leader forms the foundation for the other two
3: Boston or Singapore
0: that's an even harder one i will say singapore really but (laughs) if
3: you live in boston most of your career has been in massachusetts
0: i miss singapore the tropical weather and in the book i talk about how vision-driven singapore is but my heart is also in boston because all my friends are here so i'm a bit torn but if i had to pick one i'd say singapore in person or remote remote. It's been really interesting and opened up a world of possibilities. B2B or B2C? This is another hard one. I feel like the mindset is what makes the difference. So I really am torn. I couldn't choose between the two.
3: That's fine. That's when I had people doing that before. (laughs) So let's wrap up the conversation with maybe one final call to action for product managers listening to this podcast and they want to be better at their job. What is the one thing they can do following this podcast?
0: I think the biggest thing I would say is if we want to level up from product managers to being product leaders or really amazing product managers, what we need to be is vision driven. I've talked a little bit about vision driven throughout the podcast, but I think for me, vision-driven and what really sets one apart is this clarity of vision and strategy and being able to translate that into priorities, how you measure success, et cetera, being able to bring your whole team with you on the journey. I've talked about vision many times, but one thing I haven't done is really explain what I mean even by a good vision and this clarity. Until now, we've always learned that a good vision is big and it has to be aspirational, et cetera. And I want us to really forget all of that. What I mean by clarity is being able to define whose world are you trying to change? What exactly is their problem and how are they solving it today? Third is, why does that problem even need to be solved? Because maybe it doesn't. And then we can say, What's the world we envision? And finally, how will you bring this about? If you want to answer this level of detail in your vision, that's what I mean by clarity. And so the Radical Product Thinking Toolkit really gives you the step-by-step process for creating this level of detail in terms of vision, then you know, a similar approach, but very detailed in terms of strategy that's comprehensive, etc. But taking time to be vision-driven so that you can really bring everyone with you on the journey is what'll help you level up.
3: I think it's a good point because the barriers I see for product managers to be vision driven is one time, taking the time to think, not just being firefighting. And two, its vision sounds complicated sometimes, but you've got in your toolkit, a very nice framework to do that. And I've used this personally in a workshop and I found it helped me, but also my team, really get some clarity and we landed on a very nice vision so that was quite useful.
0: Oh that's wonderful to hear.
3: So if people want to carry on the conversation with you, learn more about your book, how can they contact you?
0: Yeah, so LinkedIn is a great way to reach me. Also the Radical Product Thinking book is in bookstores anywhere and you can find it on Amazon as well. And then lastly, you can also reach out to me through the website. There's radicalproduct.com which has the free toolkit that you can download. You can contact me through that. You can ask me about trainings and workshops that I run.
3: Perfect. Thank
0: you so much for taking the time
3: to be on the podcast. I've really enjoyed talking about radical product thinking and also the topic around ethical products. So Thank you so much for sharing your practical tips and your
0: insights. Thanks so much for having me. This was so much fun and such a pleasure talking with you.
2: Thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues, and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, or any feedback, you can write to Pellisier at hotmail.fr.